Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. My objective over the next couple of weeks is actually to talk about the subject of knowing God and being known by God. Those are two very important things. I would argue that they are the most important things in the the life of a human being, to know God and to be known by Him. Um, And so over the next two weeks, we're going to actually answer two really important questions. And I'm going to spend... I'm going to spend my time moving through this relatively slowly, although our main text this morning uh, will we'll find our time spent in Matthew 16 uh, to kind of make the point of where I'm going today. There's a lot of scripture that I have for you this morning, and I encourage you uh, to follow along with me, and I'll, and I'll do my best to slow down and give you time to actually turn uh, to those things. If you're using a digital Bible, obviously, you can, you can click over relatively quickly. But the two questions that we're going to be talking about over the next two weeks are, number one, how did we come to know God? How did we come to know God? Now, uh, it is important to understand that our relationship to God, our side of this equation, is to know Him and that He is to know us. Uh, there's, a, there's a two-way street in every relationship. We understand this. But um, I want to drill in, drill down on this how, because it's something that uh, although Christians agree in general on the principle, they often disagree on uh, the, the, the way it plays out. So we're going to talk about how did we come to know God, and I believe that that will be helpful to you. And then next week, we'll spend our time focused on how do we know that God knows us. Believe it or not, that is the, the, um, that is the question we spend the least amount of time on, but it is probably the most important of the two questions. How do we know that God knows us? If you do a quick Amazon search or a Google search with regard to books uh, on subjects like uh, knowing God, you're going to find a thousand and one books. You're going you're to find thousands upon thousands of results. If you type in, say you're using Amazon or something like this, if you type in the question, how do I know that God knows me? Interestingly enough, you're going to get the same exact search results, but you're going to get the same books. That's the problem. Because they don't understand the question. There are very few books written on this subject, and even fewer painfully obvious when you get into studying it, uh, even fewer scholarly articles and and uh, and. Uh, theological works written on this subject. It is, it is the Christian idea, it is common to every Christian tradition to want to know God. It's part of our theological studies. We all have books, it doesn't matter what your background was, we all have books that are titled something like The Character of God or The Attributes of God. We're always looking to find out who God is so that we can understand Him better. All of us know this, okay? But very rarely are we actually asking the question, okay, but how do I know that God knows me? You see, what puts this into perspective is when we understand in the New Testament, Jesus says that the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe that God exists, 
They, they know God in, in the sense that they understand his character or understand who he is in contrast to themselves. But that doesn't mean anything. Of course, we also know that God in general is omniscient, that he knows all things. But what we're talking about here is a relational knowledge. We're talking about an intimacy between the God of the universe and those who are surrendered to him, those that belong to him. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time on these two questions, and today in particular, how did we come to know God? Without that foundation, I think we have a, a serious problem. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I want, I want you to turn there, and I want you to see that this is, in fact, God's goal. It is the eternal goal of God, the, the ultimate goal of God, for us to know Him. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, this is at the, at the end of all things. This is when Jesus returns. This is when uh, you know, peace is brought and a new heaven and a new earth come. Then we will see him face to face. Now, Paul says, I know in part. But then, and this is the line. For you to hear and see, I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. God fully knows all things. Relationally, he's wanting to know you. He is desiring to know you. And we need to know him more than just a bunch of character traits of God. More than just a bunch of ideals. Those are important. Don't miss what I'm saying. Those ideas are vital. They begin to train us in how God acts or how God thinks or what he would want of us. But it's a relational knowledge that is so vitally important. So 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that God's objective in the end is that we will know fully as we are fully known. It's not that we will know stuff fully. It's that we will know him fully. And we will know him as we have been fully known. Now, God's relational track record is, is all throughout the Scripture. And I want you to travel with me. Uh, we'll be going in order, so it should be a little easier for you to navigate. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, we're going to talk about Abraham and this idea of, of intimate knowledge with God. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. For I have... And it's interesting because many of your translations are going to interpret this Hebrew word here, chosen. The Hebrew word is yada, and the word means at all points. It means to know. The interpreters of our Bibles are trying to get us to understand. A thought-for-thought thought translation is going to actually put no in the, in the brackets or put no in that line. But... The interpreters of the Bible are trying to get us to understand the depth of what he means by know. This is just not information about Abraham that God knows. It's Abraham. There's a decision that God is making for Abraham. He says, for I have chosen, I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Fathers, I want you to pay attention real quick because this is such a beautiful statement. It, it is God's goal that a father command his children and his household to keep the ways of the Lord. And here's why. So that 
And this applies to us, church. This does apply to us. It's not written to us, but it's written for us, right? And so it says, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. There are things that God has spoken to us as fathers. Train up your child in the way they should go, and in the end they won't depart. Do your job. It goes well. We can trust God. And God actually wanted Abraham to know him, to know his ways, to know his glory, so that he could bring about something. So this intimate knowledge with Abraham was for a purpose. It was for righteousness. It was for holiness. Turn to Exodus chapter 33. We'll, we'll move on to Moses now. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 and 13. Give you a little bit of time there. I love the sound of pages turning, by the way. If you're turning that much, you have no idea where Exodus is in your Bible. (laughs) Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 13. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, and this is God to Abraham, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, back to Moses speaking to God, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. You know me, but let me know your ways so that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is also your people. Uh, Moses is in, in a limbo state right now. He's just come off of Mount Sinai, and he's found that the people of Israel have been unfaithful to God. They've worshipped the golden calf, uh, all because Moses was not on time. He, wasn't, he was gone for 40 days, and they felt like he had abandoned them, or maybe that God had abandoned them as well. And so they began to worship a created idol, a created God. And Moses is infuriated by this. And so understanding that and getting ready to change the direction, they're about ready to launch again. He's going to have to go up the hill again and get new tablets and come back down because he threw them down because Moses is a little impatient. But, but So he, he's frustrated, but he's going to have to come back down, and they're about to embark on a journey. So understanding that context really helps us because Moses says to God, he says, um, he says, bring up this people. You've told me to bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. See, Aaron was already his partner. Caleb and Joshua were already a part of the entourage, part of the band. He's wondering, are these people actually going to listen to me? Are they actually going to do what I've said? Who's going to go with me into this great land that you've sent to me? He goes, you haven't told me the plan, God. And then then the verse goes on. He says, moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. That's all good, God. But I need to know what's happening. I want to know what's going on. But here's the connector, and we're going to spend a whole lot of time on this next week, Lord willing. But he says, now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you. Do you want to know how you get to know God in a deeper way? You understand his ways and you follow them. You know his ways and you follow them. This could be calling out to God so that he might show you the plan. 
You might say, God, I don't know what you're planning for me in my life. I don't know what you're doing with my family right now. I don't know what you're doing uh, in, in and around this, this city that you've put me in or whatever it is. You might ask God, and he says, okay. If he lets you know what you're getting to know is God a little bit better. But what I want you to really understand is that this has a lot to do with righteousness. It has a lot to do with holiness. And you'll see it if you go and study more on Exodus 33. But Moses wants to know what God's ways are. You want to know how to see God for who he is more than you ever have seen him before. Track his ways. You will see his patience. You will see his love. You will see his anger. You will see his mercy. When you see that, and when you begin to follow after it, you will begin to know God in a better way. It's just there in the text. So we have Abraham, who has an intimate knowledge of God. We have uh, Moses, who has an intimate knowledge of God. How about King David? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 20. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 20. And then I'm going to have you turn to the Psalms, so just be prepared. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 20 says this. Again, what more can I say to you? This is David speaking. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. The picture that I want you to see here is that God's knowledge of David, God's intimacy with David, was so profound that David didn't even have to speak and God knew what was going on. How many of you know that this is true about God? He does not, you will not be heard for your many words. As a matter of fact, he doesn't necessarily need to hear any of your words. He wants to hear you, that's not the point. But you're not going to be heard for your many words. Why? Because God's knowledge is unbelievable. The psalm that David wrote in conjunction with this moment, this episode in 2 Samuel, comes from Psalm 139. Turn there. Psalm 139. And we're going to spend our time in verses 1 through 7 here. All of this that I'm doing while you're turning, all of this is to establish the case for where we're going, which is how did we come to know God and how do we know that God knows us? But I want you to understand right at the beginning that God wants to know you and expects you to know him. You must connect those dots, okay? So Psalm 139, verses 1 through 7. This is, again, David uh, elaborating on what he said back in 2 Samuel 7, 20. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. He also knows that some of us are rising very slow the older we get. Anyway, okay. So he says, I, you know me when I sit down. You know me when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. He doesn't just know your thought. He understands your thought from afar. Verse 3, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. That doesn't mean that God is critical of everything that you're doing. But it does mean that God is shaping the path that you take. He is speaking to you and convicting you and training you and guiding you. He is wanting you to pick the right thing versus the wrong thing. So please listen to his scrutiny. Church, I'll take a quick second to just say something candid to you. Uh, guys, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a good thing. 
It is a good thing because God, although he loves you, he is shown to love you more by disciplining you. That's what scripture says. God loves those whom he disciplines or disciplines those whom he loves, whichever way it's written. But the idea here is that God wants to discipline you. Why? Because he wants you to be pure. He wants you to be right. He wants you to walk after him. The modern church cannot hear criticism. The church today are filled with people, is filled with people who love to say things like this. Eliminate all the negative people in your life. Let me tell you something. That's stupid. Number one, you need to definitely define what negativity actually is in your life. Because most people mean by remove the negative people in your life, remove the people who tell me what is right versus what I want to do. That's what they mean, okay? Stop removing negative people from your life. Number two, keep the really negative, truly negative people in your life. Why? Because they're helping you grow in sanctification. Because what you failed to remember is you're the negative person on someone's list. Somebody blocked you a long time ago on Facebook. Please hear me. We love to eliminate all adversity, all pain, all chaos. Don't listen to those preachers who tell you you need to weep before the Lord. You need to weep before the Lord. You need to humble yourself in the sight of God. You do not need to keep strutting in, acting like you own the place. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You're his. That's it. It is a perversion in the modern church. Please hear me when I say this. God says, I'm scrutinizing your ways. You know what our response should be? Although this may be painful, Lord, thy will be done. How many of you get tired of, of, of making a plan, getting to the end of it, and saying, man, that was a bad idea? Rest of you are lying to me because you all, I mean, I've had emails. I know you went down wrong paths. You know what? Some of that can be prevented by allowing the Spirit of God to scrutinize your path. Why? Church, I can't stress it. He loves you. He loves you. He wants to shape you and mold you. But every bit of your little three-year-old stubbornness just proves you need to grow up. We all need to grow up. I'm not saying this to you as though I've got this figured out. I'm saying this to you because I've learned this lesson and I'm learning this lesson and I want to do it better and better and better every day. Amen? So he says, he says, you've scrutinized my path. Let's keep going with this. And my lying down. Even when you're resting, God might be saying, it's time to stop being lazy. It's time to stop resting. You need rest, but maybe you need more, right? Because he scrutinizes your path and my lying down. Those are connected there. And are intimately acquainted with all my ways. I love it. He's intimately acquainted with all of David's ways in particular here. And he wants to be with you. Verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know, it's funny that we often say something and then immediately we run to God in repentance. He knew you were launching to say that to begin with, right? You should probably just start from a place of repentance. Every day of your life, trust me, it would, it would benefit all of us. He says, um, he says, you have enclosed me. Uh, behind and before, okay? 
There's a lot in his warrior language that we would have to spend a lot of time understanding. He says, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. This is how well God knows us. But remember what 1 Corinthians said. 1 Corinthians told us that this is the goal that God has for us to him. He has a knowledge that David said is too high and cannot be attained, or at least he's despairing in this moment and saying, I can't attain it. But 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians tells us that God wants this. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. God is moving you to know what he knows, to understand what he understands. He will always be God and you will always be his servant. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying he wants you to know him the way he knows you. He wants intimacy in that relationship. So David finishes in verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Answer, nowhere. Smile. You can't get out of it. Next one, Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Man, I'll tell you, when you start to see what God says about some people in the scriptures, it just makes you take a deep breath and pause to find out what does God say of me or what does he know of me. Not in this narcissistic fashion because we just need to know about us all the time, but instead to understand who he is and what he knows. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Here's what God said about Jeremiah. Although this may be true, theoretically, about all of us, that God knew us in the womb or that God knew us before uh, whatever it was that he knew us before. Please, please understand, these words were written to Jeremiah. And here's what he said to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. What did he do for Jeremiah? He set him apart to be a prophet of God, didn't he? He set him apart to do the very hard job that he was about to do, which is to be a prophet to the nations. He says, uh, in your mother's womb I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is the way God knows people. This is the way God knew Jeremiah. What an amazing level of intimacy. God says these things about his own people. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, and you you can just listen to this one. It's quick. You only have I chosen, yada. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. He's talking to Israel and Judah. You alone have I known. And guess what God does with those he knows? I just told you. He disciplines them. That's why in Amos 3, 2, it concludes that line with... Here's what it says. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. There's the positive church message for the day. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Why? Back to Moses' statement. Back to what Moses said in Exodus 33.12. He said, If I have found favor in your sight, Lord, let me know your ways that I may know you. And guess what God did? He let Israel know all of his ways. And guess what Israel did not do? Follow all of God's ways. They refused to know him. And so he says through the prophet Amos, he says, I have known you among all the families of the earth and you refuse to know me. You refuse to obey obey me you refuse to walk after me and guess what you're going to be punished for it guys don't take holiness lightly 
Don't take this lightly. This is the very purpose for which we were created. We were also empowered to do it. So please don't, don't, don't uh, shy away from holiness because you think it impossible. Run to holiness because God has enabled. Please, please church, we've got to understand this. So uh, this is the relational nature of God. Then we have eternal implications of not knowing God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. You should be familiar with this passage. That God wants to know you is a fact. That God wants to be known by you is His goal. That He has done this as a track record throughout human history is clear. With Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Jeremiah, with God's own people, with Amos. But now we have to see that there are eternal implications for not knowing God. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I'm going to connect this to Exodus 33. I'm going to connect this to the whole story of God so that you can understand it. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I didn't like you. I didn't know. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. And look at the line. It's an important line, church. You who practice lawlessness. What did Moses say in Exodus 33? Let me know your ways that I may know you. They knew his ways. These Pharisees, these Christians, it would appear here, knew God's ways. And guess why he does not know them? Because they didn't practice his ways. Oh, but wait a second. What did they practice? It says that they practiced miracles and prophecy. And it talked about casting out demons. Now I want you to track with me here. And I'm going to spend more time on this next week. What he's saying here is very simple. In this respect, you are participating in what only God does. The miraculous. God does these things. He may do them through you. That's perfectly fine. But guess what? God has used wicked people before. People look at this and say, how can these people uh, be real Christians? How could this ever really happen? God can use anybody. And remember this, when it comes to healing, when it comes to deliverance, when it comes to these things, although they're miraculous and cool and we need to look to them, and God did say that they will mark his people. They will be a sign that marks his people. Please understand something about these signs and wonders. These are things God does, and sometimes God does them in spite of you, not because of you. These are things God does. But what do you do? You live in obedience. These people did every sign and wonder in the book, and they didn't obey God, and God said, I never knew you. That should humble every single one of us. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He doesn't say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, but hey, kudos to you doing some of these cool things. No, I never knew you. John chapter 5, 39 and 42. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. 
It's what Jesus says to the wicked Pharisees and those who are searching the scriptures but missing the Jesus they spoke about. He says, I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Why? It's the same ridicule he makes of the Pharisees every time. They're lawless. Back to Exodus 33. They know the ways of God and they choose not to do them. Church, hear me very carefully. Any church that preaches to you that you're saved by grace, but that means nothing, and and God doesn't care about your behavior, He doesn't care about your righteousness, He doesn't care about your holiness, any church that teaches you, you can continue to live in your sin, you can continue to do things that God says, oh, by the way, if you practice this, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but that was some sort of old school understanding. Nonsense. God wants holy people, and He's empowered you to be so. Stop listening to preachers and pastors who say, hey, God loves you just the way you are so you can stay as you were. Nonsense. Your life is to be surrendered to Him every single day. The story hasn't changed, church. The story hasn't changed. From Exodus 33 to John chapter 5, the story is the same thing. You know my ways, do it if you want to know me. And if you know me, eternal life. If you don't know me, depart from me. That's humbling, church. That's humbling, church. Last piece on that, on that passage from John 5. I get so tired of people manipulating this verse. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And people in the church today all the time love to use this passage to communicate the other nonsense message in the church. And that is, it's, about, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Can you be quiet for just 10 seconds? It's about both religion and relig- I know you're mad at me now. That's fun, right? But listen, listen to me. He did not say, stop searching the scriptures and just think you have a relationship with Jesus. Their problem was that they looked at the pages and missed the Jesus in them. Our problem many times can be that we search the scriptures and miss the Jesus in them. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with our eyes. Isn't it? Isn't it? So nobody said throw out the Bible, although that's the modern version of it. Oh, it's all about your relationship with Jesus. Just just go and pray in a corner. You don't even know what you're praying unless you've read God's Word. You don't even know what He would respond with unless you've read God's Word. You can't test the spirits unless you read the Word of God to find out that guy is crazy. Or wackerdoodle, whatever. You knew it would come back. There's my word. Please hear me, church. There is nothing wrong with the word of God. The same spirit that supposedly empowers us, he does, by the way. The same spirit that empowers us inspired those pages. I love, 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 love how people needlessly divorce those two. It's just, it's just pitiful. Pitiful. It does not say throw it out and just warm and fuzzy. No, read it, but see what it points to. See what it's speaking of. So this week, what an intro, right? This week, and I'll get as far as I can, guys. I'm not, I'm not going to torture you all day, but I'm going to get as far as I can. Turn back to Matthew 16. That's where we were supposed to start here. <laughs> all of this is in my script, so I there is no unintended rabbit trails 
Just once you're sure. <laughs> Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Remember what our first question is? How did we come to know God? Church, is it important to know God? I don't think you've gotten it yet. Is it important to know God? Yes, it is important to know God. Now the natural question is, how did we come to know God? How did we come to know God? And I'm telling you, the how is just as important as the truth that we need to. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? You notice what Jesus is doing with that second question? He's confirming that he is what he just talked about before. He's confirming that he is that son of man figure that Jewish people would have known about. They would have read Daniel. Josephus gives us insight into the popularity of the, of the prophecy of Daniel in the first century in understanding that this was a look-to uh, text. Daniel 7 is what communicates to us this figure, this messianic figure of the Son of Man. And so Jesus asks a separate question to his own disciples, or he at least asks it in a different way, but who do you say that I am? And it's amazing because Peter was among the disciples who previously said, John the Baptist, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets, okay? Uh, that, that was the previous group, that was the disciples who were answering that. But look at this, Peter in his awesome fashion chimes in, top dog, he gets the answer, he understands the, the question, gets the answer, and then he has to shout it out. But look at what it says. It says, Simon Peter answered, Okay, Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him, he says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right there is how we come to know God. No Christian tradition out there believes other then God has to reveal himself to mankind. How that happens is debated. Of course, there's always something to debate. But that God had to shine a light in the darkness, that God had to speak so that deaf ears could hear, that God had to come into our midst, that we, the dead sinners that we are, could have life, that God had to do it is, is not debated. God is the source of salvation. God is the one who ushers in this truth to all mankind. God is the one who, while we were yet sinners, chose to die for us. Still scratching my head as to why he would do such a thing, but the Bible tells us the answer to the glory of God. So that we would magnify him for what? His mercy. His mercy, His mercy. Because He saved pitiful, poor, broken, wretched sinners. Let me give you a picture of what it would look like if you think that you were, you were a guy out there just trying to figure out who God was all by yourself and, and you feel like you stumbled across God without the use of the Scriptures or without the use of the Bible. The picture is Paul on Mars Hill. 
You would have been just like all of these pagans. You would have had idol after idol after idol after idol in your house. And here's what you would have done, to, to your credit, if this is credit, right? To your credit, you would, have had a God, you would have had an idol over here and you would have said, that's the one I don't really understand. That's to the unknown God. To the best of your ability, you can't pick out God in a lineup. Trust me, you can't. He's standing there going, and you're like, duh, what? What's going on here? So what does Paul do to get those people on Mars Hill to actually understand the same thing that happened to you in your life, the same thing that happened to me in my life, and the same thing that we're supposed to do in the rest of the world? Paul looks at it and goes, oh, opportunity. That, that idol, that unknown God, let me tell you about him. Do you know what he proceeded to do? Preach the gospel. He communicated the gospel. And guess what the gospel does, church? The gospel which is the revelation of God, it speaks to deaf ears. It shines to blind eyes. Trust me, trust me, church. How do we come to know God? Because God started it. He's the one who picked a a fight with creation. He's the one who said, I want to save you. He's the one who came to us first. Please don't miss this, church. So let's talk about how this comes about at least in the perspective of our church, the order of salvation, it's such a fascinating thing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We came to know God because the gospel was spoken to us. We came to know God because God revealed himself. That is just a glorious idea. And who do we praise for that? We praise God. Not ourselves. We didn't invent this story, church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. Here's the, uh, as the Latin would say, ordo salutis. Here's the order of salvation. Verse 13. In him, that is Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth. What is the message of truth, church? The gospel of Jesus. And in case you wanted clarification, look at what Paul says next. The gospel of your salvation, (laughs) just in case you were wondering. So after listening to the message of truth, so where are we at in the timeline? The first thing that happens is the message of truth is declared. After listening to the message of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed the message of truth, so guess what you have to do? The message is declared and you have to place faith in God. This is called trust. Faith is trust and that is all. Okay? This is believing. So how did you hear when in your deafness or in your blindness? The gospel can do that. The gospel can do that. It can wake you up, church. Listen to me. So he says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, step two, having also believed, step three, look at this beautiful seal and this beautiful promise. After this, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. When does the Holy Spirit come into the life of the Christian? Once they believe. But it is really important we understand that why the Spirit came into our life is manifold. We're going to be spending our days discovering this one. We're going to be spending our days understanding and unpacking what the Spirit of God does always in the lives of the Christian. But what I want you to see here is that the Spirit of God was given to those who heard the gospel and those who believed as a deposit of the future glory that they're waiting for. God says, I'm not going to just let you wait till heaven. 
I'm not going to just wait till there's a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to go ahead and give you something now, a deposit. It is my spirit. So he says, after uh, the gospel of salvation has been preached, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. God as a pledge of our inheritance? That's an amazing idea. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So again, church, how did we come to know God? According to this, the gospel. How is it that the gospel can wake people up? Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who, order of salvation again, believes. The gospel is declared. Belief is the response to the Jews first and also to the Greek. Because God is what? No respecter of persons. God wants all to come to know him. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, and we understand what the antecedent is, the it is grace. The it is not faith. Faith is trust, and that is all. And it's fascinating because even, uh, even in some circles, for example, John Calvin agrees, it does not refer to faith. It's a fascinating idea. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, that it is not of yourselves. Grace is not of yourselves. It, grace is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because what would, what would give us cause to boast? Not faith. Works would give us cause to boast. Saving ourselves would give us cause to boast. Paul confirms this in Romans 4, 5, and 16. Romans 4 verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, whose faith? His faith is credited as righteousness. Faith is trust and that is all. It's not something you can pat yourself on the back for. Faith is simply saying, I can't save myself. Right? You see it? So, we put our faith in God, and that is credited to us as righteousness. The same as Abraham, the same as Moses, the same as Jeremiah. It's the same thing all throughout the the history of mankind. Verse 16 of Romans 4. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Paul is trying to melt this idea away that we could save ourselves by our works, but he's also trying to implant the idea that faith is not an obstacle. It is a natural response to the gospel. For this reason, it is by faith in order, that is justification, salvation, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, the Gentile, who is the father of us all. And you can go back to the series on Romans uh, for a lot more commentary on that. So, how do we come to know God? His revelation. His gospel, his light shining in the darkness, his word spoken to deaf ears, okay? What do we do in response? We have faith, okay? We have faith. 
Now, some look at this and say, that's hard because now you're saying some can have faith and some don't have faith. And, and how do I know? Are those good versus bad people? It's not, about, it's not about morality at that point. That's why Paul stressed, it is so that it's in accordance with grace that it's through faith. Faith is not the obstacle here. But just so you can rest your mind, Romans 10, 17 says this, faith does come a certain way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How can you put your trust in something you've never heard of? Answer me, church. Can you? Can you put your trust in something you've never heard of? No. Can you put your trust in something that you have had declared to you? Yes. Can you refuse to put your trust in it? Of course you can. Of course you can. It's sad, but you can. The gospel is declared, and all of a sudden we have this opportunity. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word about Christ. So we came to know God through the revelation of the gospel. And although proclaimed through flesh and blood, please connect these two dots here. Hey, everybody. You guys are awesome and small, but I love you. Okay, so check this out. Check this out. Although proclaimed through flesh and blood, who spoke to Peter? Who spoke to Peter when, who asked Peter those two questions in Matthew 16? Jesus did. Did he come in the flesh? Yes. But who revealed it according to Jesus? The Father, right? But my Father who is in heaven has revealed this. Do you go and preach the gospel to people? I'm not asking if you actually do. I'm saying, are we supposed to? Are you supposed to preach the gospel? Yes, you're supposed to preach the gospel. Does it come through flesh and blood? Yes, but what is the revel- who is the revelation from? Our Father who is in heaven. Please don't miss this. This is why Romans 10.4 speaks of the blessedness of the person who brings good news. Oh, it's a blessed thing for a person to bring the gospel. Don't forget, God is revealing himself to people, but he happens to want to use you and I. This is why the Great Commission exists. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Think about this. Could God just say, fine, I'll just announce it from a megaphone from heaven? Could he do that? Of course he could. He could announce it from heaven. He could just speak and everybody would hear. But what does God choose to do? Use people. Why does he choose to use us? Exodus 33. Because when you know the ways of God and when you practice them, you learn who he is. You begin to know him. Is God a God of the gospel message? Yes, he's the writer. Do we declare the gospel? Yes. Why? To know him better every day. To know that every person that we tell about Jesus, what we're actually discovering is that God loves people more than we do. God loves people more than we do. He loves your neighbor more than you do. He loves your wife more than you do. He loves your children more than you do. Let me tell you one of the greatest problems in the church today, and I know I jump onto these things a lot, but there is so much going wrong that it has to be addressed. I could choose to address it like some and just scream at the top of my lungs, Or I can address it the way I do and try to give you a reasoned understanding of why it's a problem and what we can do about it. So many mission organizations in our world today are going overseas and going to all the ends of the world. And what are they doing? 
They are doing a necessary thing. They're helping people in their lives. They're helping people with food on the table. They're helping people with employment. They're helping people with communities and and these things. But listen to me clearly, church. More and more mission organizations are being ridiculed by the people in those countries saying, stop sending people like this. Because all the gospel they're presenting is, is a gospel of philanthropy. They, they give you food, they give you water, they give you this, they give you that, but nobody preaches the only message that makes blind eyes see, makes uh, deaf ears hear. You know that old adage that says, what if we gained the whole world but forfeited our soul? In missions, I've changed it. What if we give the whole world the whole world, but we never care about their soul? Well, forget us. We're not doing the job. Jesus had some words for Pharisees who did this. He says, you travel over land and sea and you create twice the son of hell that you are. (laughs) Smile. The problem in the world today is that we're ashamed of the very message that saves people. And let me tell you how important this is. We're ashamed of it because we think people come to know God by us. People come to know God by the gospel, not you. Not me. They don't come through us. They come through the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. You see, it's just ever so slight how we turn it around. And then everything's about us. Well, I saved 10 people this day. Well, I I ministered to all these. No, 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 no. Unless you preach the gospel, unless you preach the gospel, uh, you aren't finished with your job. You haven't done your job. And this is a serious problem. But here's what we do. We're resting on ourselves. We're resting. Man, I tell you, Nathan, if we don't don't help somebody who's hungry, I agree with you. Don't just pray for them. Don't just pray for them. Feed them. The Bible tells us that that's the case. But communicate why you're feeding them. Well, I got American guilt, so I'm feeding you. You need to hear me. <laughs> I got American guilt. I've got, I've got rich people guilt. We're all doing good. So I feel guilty, so I want to help some people. No, 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 no. I'm a lost beggar who needs Jesus, and I want you to see that too. Amen? Amen? You see, church, we come to know God only because of God. Because of his revelation, he's shown in the darkness. This is an amazing thing. And guess what the scripture says that we have a responsibility to do? Participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. This is how we'll end today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, past tense. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are uh, are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How did all these things come? From God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do you know what that is, church? The gospel. He has committed to you the word of reconciliation. It is the gospel. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. That is a humbling statement there. Because any part that we play in this, we are ambassadors for Christ. And Paul stresses the point next. He says, as though God were making his appeal through us. God uses people. Isn't that an amazing thing? But God is the one who saves. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who who made this story of reconciliation. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's interesting language that Paul would say, we beg you. What an appeal there. Verse 21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Knowing who God is and him knowing us is of the utmost importance. It is a relational track record that God has of knowing people and being known by them. It is God's goal to fully know us or he fully know us and we fully know him. That's his goal. There are eternal implications to this truth. And that is that if we do not know God, his words are, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a humbling thing. But then we learn how we come to know God. And this should forever change our practice. We come to know God. We all came to know God because the gospel was declared to us. And it changed our hearts. That is the message you are called to preach into the world. You are not called to go into the world and just simply love people and never get around to that Jesus business. You are not to go into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if you have to, because you have to. So, so, so tired of this church. Recent poll was done. And it was like 85% of Christians do not or have not ever shared their faith with anyone. I don't need to ask you for a show of hands. All I need you to do is ask the question to yourself. Is this true? And make sure you define it properly. If you were on Mars Hill, would you say, I see that you worship a bunch of crap. Let me uh, tell you about the God that you need to know about. Or are you the person that says, hey, I see that you're a pretty religious person. That's awesome. So am I. Good for you. I don't know what's going on. I know this hurts. I know this hurts. But listen to me. Everything that I get up to preach, I hope you know this. Everything I get up to preach, God has first hurt me over it. He just breaks my heart constantly. He shows me who I am. He shows me the nonsense messages that we hear in the church today. He shows me how broken the church is, how dysfunctional we are, how messed up and backwards we've gotten it, and how much we've convinced ourselves it's not upside down and backwards. We're actually better Christians than anybody before. Simply not true, church. It's simply not true. We are, we're just not getting it. But you know what? 
while there's a day called today, we have a chance, don't we? We have a chance today. And every time you step out in God's ways, here's my promise to you, because it's his promise. You come to know him better. You come to know him more. Church, we're a gospel peddling people because we have a message that changes people's lives. We need to start preaching it. We need to start declaring it. It goes beyond just inviting your friends to church, although I think that that is a valuable thing. But as you know my heart, it's not a valuable thing to me because I necessarily care about butts and seats. It's a valuable thing because I am committed. I will preach to you the gospel. You don't have to like me, but I will preach to you the gospel. But I want you to be encouraged to do the same, church. We need to go. We need to go into all the world. Show of hands. How many of you feel that the world seems to be growing darker? It's like icky, right? We just had two mass shootings yesterday. Two mass shootings. And I don't care what your politics are. What I want you to understand is that there's death happening. There's brokenness happening. There's hurt people happening all around. And guess what the answer is? Not another thing of legislation. The answer is Jesus. If we're legislators, should we try to use our pulpit to, to, uh, to minister the gospel? You better bet your butt you should. You should use whatever pulpit God gives you inside of your life. But listen to me. You have to preach the gospel. That is what changes people's lives. That is what changes people's lives. So how did we come to know the gospel? The gospel was declared to us. How is the rest of the world going to come to know Jesus? We have to preach the gospel to them. It's God's power, church. It's God's power. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.